you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Titus. The book of Titus contains God's game plan for the Christian life. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first two plays in our playbook. The first set of X's and O's, if you will, in God's game plan for the Christian life. They were bringing the lost to faith and training the saved for godliness. This next set of X's and O's in God's game plan for the Christian life deals with church leadership. What exactly is God's game plan for church leaders? Let me pick it up in verse 5. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Here's what we're going to consider today. First, what to look for in a church leader, what to expect from a church leader, and what motivates a church leader. What to look for in a church leader, what to expect from a church leader, and what motivates a church leader. First, what to look for in a church leader. Paul basically outlines three different bits of criteria for a church leader. The first is that a church leader has a good reputation in the home. We see that in verse 6. Good reputation in the home. The NIV uses the term blameless. The ESV uses the term above reproach. The main idea is not perfection, but having a good reputation in the home. And he specifies this by saying a church leader is to be faithful to his wife, not open to the charge of infidelity or being a flirt. His interactions with other women are above board. Now let me just pause here. I realize we're still getting to know each other. Um, and, uh, and I want to just throw out there a couple of things that in pastoral ministry I was taught very early on when it comes to my interactions with women in the church. Um, Pastoring women can be tricky. And I don't mean that to be an insult on ladies on your delightfully complex natures. A um, couple of practices that I have first. Uh, I will not have coffee with you one-on-one. -on -one. I will not have lunch with you one-on-one. -on -one. I'm not going to be in that kind of an environment with you. That opens up a Pandora's box uh, if we're going to meet one-on-one, -on -one, we're going to do it in 
in the church office, preferably, or in some kind of public office setting. We're not going to do the coffee one-on-one thing, lunch one-on-one thing. That is, is fraught with trouble. Second, I pay very close attention to the nature of our conversations. This is where the pastoring part of women in the church can be challenging. I want to be there to speak biblical truth into your lives, to listen to you, to listen to your struggles and your suffering. I want to be available to do that. But I pay close attention to how long that will happen. A couple of conversations maybe, and then I'm going to refer you. There's, there's a practical reason for that that I think is, is biblical. First of all, the Bible tells me that my heart is deceitful and wicked. I believe that. I believe that. So I want to have structures in, my, in place in my life that don't make that problem that's in me have breathing room. The second is this. I... You all know that before coming here, I was a pastor in a very large church. That has some pros to it. That has some cons to it. One of the cons to it is that uh, I was pastorally involved in more cases of adultery than you can shake a stick at. In every one of those, it started not as a physical thing. It started with the content of the conversation in every one of them. Staying too long, talking about emotionally charged stuff with somebody who's not your spouse, someone of the opposite sex. This is why it's important to me that we have some other avenues in our church for women in our church to receive care. Some of the things on my radar, having female staff counselors, having a women's ministries director, having a very strong women's ministry is important to me for these reasons. A church leader's relationship with someone of the opposite sex is to be above board. Men, let me just throw this out there. Pay attention to the kind of conversations you're having with someone who's not your spouse. Pay attention to the content of those conversations. Have your antennae up on that. Pay very close attention to that. Paul continues, and he says, this church leader's children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The term for children here implies younger children. This is not adult children. When children are young, they often mirror or reflect the beliefs, practices of dad and mom in the home. They mirror or reflect that. As they grow older, they develop their own thoughts independent of their parents, but young children who are wild and disobedient are often reflecting problems existing in the home. Now, why does Paul bring so much attention to how church leaders ought to be blameless in the home? 1 Timothy 3, Paul is writing to Timothy under similar circumstances that Paul is writing to Titus. And in that, in that chapter, 1 Timothy 3, Paul sees a connection between leadership in the home and leadership in the church. He writes, if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how can he manage God's church? So he clearly sees a connection between how a home is managed and whatever it takes to do that and managing the church. He sees a connection between the two. 
So having a good reputation in the home is the stuff leaders are made of. Second, Paul says, church leaders need to have a good reputation of character. Paul lists five negative characteristics, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. He lists six positive characteristics, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now, what's so interesting about this, given our cultural context, is that Paul's primary concern isn't finding people with the best skills or most alluring personalities, but finding people with character. Think about that. That is countercultural. Paul's primary concern is not finding those with the best skills or most alluring personalities, it's finding people with character. That's countercultural because in our society today, we, we have a culture that's enamored with skill and personality. In her New York Times bestseller, Susan Cain writes this. She says, in the culture of character, the ideal self was serious, disciplined, and honorable. What counted was not so much the impression one made in public as how one behaved in private. The word personality didn't exist in English until the 18th century, and the idea of having a good personality was not widespread until the 20th. But when they embraced the culture of personality, Americans started to focus on how others perceived them. They became captivated by people who were bold and entertaining. The social role demanded of all in a new culture of personality was that of a performer. Warren Sussman famously wrote, every American was to become a performing self. Kane argues that over the past couple of centuries, American culture has drifted from a culture of character to a culture of personality. What Americans value most are leaders who are charismatic and magnetic personalities. She and others argue that that's not the way it's always been in American culture. We once possessed a culture of character. That is how one conducted oneself, especially in private, was to be prized. But that's not the case anymore. Now, this makes being a leader in the 21st century challenging. I breathe the same air that you do when it comes to American culture in the 21st century. What does American culture say a pastor should be like when he takes this stage on Sunday morning? A performing self. You should be moved by the charisma and magnetism that seeps out my pores. I feel that tug of war. It's a battle. Because there's nothing charismatic or magnetic about my personality. I know that. My wife told me that. <laughs> For Paul, character is king. Not personality, not skill. Now, I'm not implying that pastors should work hard to be boring in their preaching. Uh, I hope pastors everywhere work really hard at studying God's word, at being faithful to communicate the author's intent of the text as they preach it, and that they work hard to rub the text into the heart of every hearer. 
I hope pastors everywhere are doing that. But I do wonder sometimes in our culture of personality, uh, if we in the church have been lured away, lured away from the biblical ideal, have we been duped? For Paul, character is king. Having character is the stuff biblical leaders are made of. Third, Paul says, this is what you need to look for in a church leader, a good reputation of doctrine. Verse 9, a church leader must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the first two characteristics kind of focus on what a pastor is supposed to be like. This one is focusing on what he's supposed to do. The primary activity of the church leader is giving instruction in sound doctrine. The proliferation of sound doctrine throughout the church is the primary way a church leader manages God's church. This will become clear, actually, as we continue to work through the book of Titus. I, for a woman, am convinced that sound doctrine is essential for two things. Sound doctrine is essential for living godly lives, and sound doctrine is essential for building healthy churches. Doctrine is not just for a statement of faith tucked away somewhere on a church's website. Doctrine is for preaching, it's for teaching, it's for small groups, it's for counseling. Sound doctrine is for one-on-one conversations over a cup of coffee. Sound doctrine is for praying, it's for singing. Now when we hear this word doctrine, I realize that it probably has some baggage for some of you, but just so we're thinking the same thing here, let me use Bobby Jameson's definition of it. He says, sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. That's sound doctrine. It's a summary of the Bible's teaching that's faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Doctrine isn't for winning Bible trivia contests. Doctrine is a map. It's a map that helps Christians navigate this life competently and in a way that honors Jesus. Now, think about this picture of it. What enables physicians to make wise choices in treating people is a vast understanding of the human body. You can't know if a kidney is failing if you don't know what a kidney does. This is why doctors spend years studying human anatomy and physiology. Sometimes they need to be able to prescribe life-saving remedies on the spot. In many ways, the Christian life isn't that different. We have to make complicated decisions in real time. Sometimes when there's a lot on the line. Sometimes there's no easy formula to follow. It takes wisdom. It takes sound doctrine to be able to do that. Doctrine is the physiology of the Christian life. Doctrine is the physiology of of the Christian life. So Paul is saying in this section of text, here's how you can identify a church leader. A church leader has a good reputation in the home, a good reputation of character, and a good reputation of sound doctrine. Second, what to expect from a church leader. That's what you look for in a church leader. There's what you can expect from a church leader. Listen to the verbs that Paul uses throughout the book of Titus to describe the actions he's calling church leaders to. 
Here are the actions the Apostle Paul is calling church leaders to. Exhort, warn, silence, rebuke sharply, rebuke, teach, remind. These are all the action items, action uh, verbs that Paul is using to call church leaders to. And they break down into base, two basic categories. The first is exhortation. Now, some translations use the term encourage. In our cultural context, I think encouragement is often tantamount to patting someone on the back or praising someone. Paul's term is a little more technical than that. The term exhortation is probably closer to the original here. So to exhort someone is to urge someone to go in a particular direction. To exhort has kind of a, two faces to it. On the one hand, there's cheerleading involved. Go for it. You can do it. There's cheerleading combined with some direction given. There's instruction given. It's not just praising somebody for what they've done. It's encouraging someone to go in a particular direction. That's exhortation. The second action he's calling them to is loving confrontation. Paul uses some strong verbs in his leadership coaching of Titus. Some very strong verbs. He tells Titus and other church leaders to silence, warn, rebuke sharply. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if in our cultural context we find that unpalatable. Tim Chester, who's a church planter in England, comments on this saying, a loving leader will know that what is nicest for you to hear is not always what is best for you to hear. What's nicest for you to hear is not always what's best for you to hear. This is another corrective, I think, to our culture's influence. Sometimes I wonder if our culture, both inside and outside the church, is that what's expected of church leaders is to be the nicest people on the planet. For the record, you won't find the word nice in the Bible. Sometimes niceness means infinitely tolerant, infinitely accommodating, infinitely sympathetic. So when people come up against a church leader who is showing a biblical spine, we might be offended by that. The book of Titus was meant to be read out loud to the entire church. We know that from chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul uses the plural form of the word you. Paul's expecting Titus to read this for the whole church. They're peering in, as it were, listening in onto this conversation between the Apostle Paul and Titus, the pastor of this church in Crete. Which means... In writing for all to hear, what expectations are made of church leaders, Paul is saying to the church at large, don't be surprised when your leaders rebuke, silence, or warn. It is their God-given role to do so. What's best for you to hear isn't always going to be what's nicest for you to hear. Now, there's a purpose to this. There's a purpose to this loving confrontation. Verse 13 says the purpose is that people in the church may be sound in the faith. The purpose of exhortation, the purpose of loving confrontation is soundness of faith. Or, to put it differently, the purpose of this exhortation and loving confrontation is a gospel-centeredness. 
gospel centricity overlaps with sound doctrine. So when you see sound doctrine, think to yourself, gospel centricity is implied in that. In contrast to legalistic or moralistic, in the context of the book of Titus, exhortation, loving confrontation was to take place so the church would not drift into legalism or moralism. We're going to see that next. Paul is calling church leaders, their activity in the church, to be comprised of exhortation, loving confrontation for the purpose of confronting those who are advocating for legalism or moralism. So let's look last then at what motivates a church leader. What motivates a church leader? The short answer is the gospel. The short answer is the gospel motivates a church leader. Church leaders need to be of the highest character, committed to sound doctrine. They're expected to practice exhortation, loving confrontation. Why? Because the gospel is what motivates them. Verse 10 says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Identifying this circumcision party is going to be important for us. It's going to be important for us to understand what motivates Paul and what is to motivate church leaders. So Paul's instructing Titus to rebuke the circumcision party so that they may be sound in faith. Clearly, Paul's not a fan of whatever it is they believe or are doing in the church. So what would the circumcision party have believed? This circumcision party would have believed that you become a Christian by faith in Christ. Now, we listen to that. We say, that's good, right? Yeah, I say, amen. You become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. But they would continue. They would add to say, but to stay a Christian, to grow as a Christian, to be a good Christian or a proper Christian, you need to be circumcised. This is the essence of legalism or moralism. Legalism or moralism reduces holiness to visible, measurable behavior. Let me say that again. Legalism or moralism reduces holiness to visible, measurable behavior. Don't sleep around. Don't get drunk. Don't go to movies. Volunteer at homeless shelters. Visible, measurable behavior. Moralism says being a good Christian is about visible, measurable behavior. Now, why does Paul want church leaders to lovingly confront those who have this view of things? There are a couple of reasons Paul wants church leaders to lovingly confront those who have this view of things. The first is that moralism or legalism overlooks two things. Legalism or moralism overlooks two things. The first are attitudes. Attitudes are often not visible, nor are they easily measured. See, it's possible to be sexually chaste and possess a prejudiced attitude towards someone of another race, someone of another social class or political party. It's possible to be a faithful volunteer at a charitable organization and simultaneously possess a critical spirit towards those who aren't. This is moralism, it's legalism. It's reducing holiness, it's shrinking holiness to visible, measurable behavior. And it's overlooking underlying attitudes. The second thing legalism or moralism overlooks is motivation. Write it down. Doing good things for the wrong reason 
is wrong. Doing good things for the wrong reason is wrong. Isaiah chapter 1. We read there that the people of Israel were offering God's sacrifices, the finest sacrifices, in obedience to him. God wanted the finest sacrifices to be offered to him. That was great. But in the text, God says that their sacrifices are an abomination to him. Why? Because of the motivation inside Israel's hearts. They were doing it to placate God. They were doing it to appease God. They were doing it to bribe God. Doing good things for the wrong reasons, is wrong. Moralism overlooks this. Legalism overlooks this. Now, I don't want to make cynics out of everybody. (laughs) I have to be careful with this. I don't want to make cynics out of everybody, but I think we are far too easily impressed with a visible, measurable behavior. I think we're far too easily impressed. We don't realize that Good, visible, measurable behavior of some Christians may actually be a stench in the nostrils of God because of the invisible attitudes Christians possess or the underlying motivations behind their behavior. Now, let me dig deeper into this to find out why moralism or legalism is such an atrocity in the eyes of God. Why does moralism reduce being a good Christian to visible, measurable behavior? Why is that? Visible and measurable behavior is a clearer indicator of how I'm doing than invisible, immeasurable attitudes and motivations. Moralism makes visible, measurable behavior the basis of my standing before God. If I can see and measure how well I'm doing, I can have peace of mind that God is pleased with me. And it's much easier to base my acceptability before God on whether or not I attended Bible study than whether or not I've loved my neighbor as myself. Attending Bible study is a whole lot easier to measure than loving my neighbor as myself. Moralism, in other words, makes my performance the basis of my acceptability before God and others. It is, therefore, a rejection of the gospel itself. This is why Paul is so fired up about this. The language he's using in this text is off the charts. He's fired up. Why does he want church leaders to lovingly confront those who are advocating for moralism and legalism? Because in Paul's mind, it's a rejection of the gospel itself. In contrast to this, the gospel is freeing. See, moralism says I'm acceptable before God based on my performance. I'm acceptable before God based on my performance. God is pleased with me based on my visible and measurable performance. The gospel says I'm acceptable before God based on Jesus' performance. God is pleased with me based on Jesus' visible and invisible, measurable and immeasurable performance.
there are two attitudes that will pervade your life when you're rooted in the gospel. Gratitude and humility. When you're truly motivated by the gospel, you will find yourself in a state of gratitude and humility. And let's face it, it's ingratitude and pride that make our experience of life miserable. I've said it before, the secret to a happy life is humility. I would add to that, the secret to a happy life is gratitude and humility. Gratitude and humility result when we have a gospel focus. I am acceptable before God based on the life Jesus lived and the death he died for me. That's freeing. The Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest um, honor, the highest award for valor in action against an enemy force. When, when military personnel see a Congressional Medal of Honor hanging around the neck of a fellow serviceman or servicewoman, they snap to attention. Why? Well, they're honoring not only the achievement of the individual, but they're honoring also what the medal stands for. If you have come to believe the gospel, you have a medal of honor hanging around your neck. But there's no room for boasting because it's not there because of your performance. Jesus earned that Medal of Honor. We actually were the ones fighting against him in battle. We were his enemies. After waging the war, Jesus took us in. And he's crowned us with honor. This is freeing. And it should lead to humility. It should lead to gratitude. For being the recipient of such an honor at the price of God's only son, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this table now, I pray you would use these moments to drive the truth of the gospel deeper into us. This table means we are acceptable before you, not based on our moral or religious performance, we are acceptable before you because of the life Jesus lived and the death he died for us. So God, I pray, even in these moments, that you would transform us, that you'd change us, cause the seed of the gospel to get deeper into us. And as a result, may we become a people truly humbled by the gospel and filled with gratitude for what you have done. Lord, we praise you that our acceptability before you is not predicated upon our moral or religious performance. Instead, it's been purchased for us through the life your son lived and death he died. Bring us back to that again and again and again so that we may find a place of rest and peace rooted all in your love and your grace for us. We praise you and we thank you for the kind of God you've demonstrated yourself to be through this beautiful gospel. We worship you for it now in Christ's name.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.